ready for the word of the Lord tonight? Now, let's, let's stand up together. And um, we're starting chapter 3. This, this, this is a chapter that burns a little bit. But I want to remind you, I think we're going to end maybe a little earlier than usual. So I'm going to take a couple of questions at the end. If you have any questions about what I go over, I'm going to go over some things that might cause some questions. Uh, or there's something else you've been wondering about, about the Bible. Um, I'm going to take a couple of questions. Johnny will grab the mic, and he's very fast. If you're way over here, he'll run to you, right? All right, because he's a, you know, he's a Fort Worth police lieutenant. A lot of y'all didn't know that. So um, just, just keep that in mind. And um, we're going to deal tonight with, I know it's your favorite word. I know it's submission. Everybody say, all right. Yeah, a man said, right on. But, but see, I'm going to be getting the males and the females tonight. Both are in my crosshairs tonight. So <laughs> that's good. All right, Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for this incredible Bible. Thank you, Lord. This is the sacred text. This is the very God-breathed word. And we come to it, Lord, thanking you for it. And thank you for the instruction you gave to the Apostle Peter for us tonight to live by, to apply and live by so that our lives are blessed. If you want a blessed life, lift your hands to the Lord and say, Lord, tonight I receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, God heard that. And our prayers are with uh, many of our folks that are spring breaking. And I'm kind of starting to get used to having uh, lost an hour. I'm still feeling it a little bit. How many are with me there? It takes about a week. But now, tonight, we're going to look at letters that burn, 1 Peter 3. Now, now, Submission is a loaded word, especially in our day of uh, lawlessness. And because that word has been attacked, twisted, um, misunderstood, I, I want to just pause and talk about it some tonight. Now, we talked last time about submission to authority. Because how many of you ever realized that the, the world is made up of authority? Everywhere you turn, there's authority. Right? How many parents in here? Right? Your authority in your home. And your kids should know it. Right? You go to work, you, you deal with a boss, that's authority. You're racing down the highway, breaking the speed limit, you get pulled over by authority. Okay? So much of life is learning how to respond to authority. That's what the home is supposed to teach the children. How to respond to authority. Because if they don't learn it at home, let me tell you how it goes. If they don't learn it at home, they'll learn it at school. If they don't learn it at school, they'll learn it from the law. And if they don't learn it from the law, they'll learn it in prison. Now that's rough, but that's true. Everybody needs to know how to respond to authority. How God sees authority. So, um, I want to reiterate a couple of things I said last time. When the Bible says we're to submit to authority, it's not saying that we cannot uh, redress wrongs. It's not saying that we shouldn't 
seek reform. Okay? Now here's what we've got to realize. Uh, Peter and the apostles lived in a totalitarian culture where you didn't have a choice for who ruled over you. Um, what a democratic system. Whoever ended up as, as the Caesar, that's who you got. And almost without fail, they were terrible. Okay? Peter's writing, as you know, if you've been with me from the start of this series, he's writing under Nero, one of the worst Caesars to ever take that position, who ended up taking his own life when he was 32 years old. Doesn't surprise me, because everything that he did to other people caught up with him in his own mind. Uh, and they didn't live in a culture that had free speech. There was no guarantee of free speech. No, no, no. So, so when, when Peter exhorts the church to live in submission to authority and, and to take ill treatment with patience, the only other choice they had was either to rebel and die or go to jail. They didn't have a free speech. Ours is under attack right now in, in big ways. I could talk about the universities now, how they are infested with students that will not, will not tolerate a speaker brought on campus that is going to bring a message, a talk, a lecture, contrary to what they believe. They will vandalize the school. They will shout them down. They will threaten their lives the speaker's lives. Seriously, it happens all the time. It happened this week. In a major university in America, a former uh, judge went to speak. And they so shouted him down, yelled at him obscenities, screaming at him, that he finally had to just walk away under armed guard for protection. No respect for authority. We're in a lawless culture. And I shudder to think, those same students, this was a law school. Those same students are going to one day be politicians, lawyers, uh, judges. God help us all. Because to me, if you're confident in your position, you can listen to another position and have a good, honest debate about it, and not scream and shout them down. That's what cowards do. And I hope they hear this broadcast. So we, we live, live under a governmental system that does allow reform. Okay, uh, You can address wrongs that are committed. It, it's how you address them that matters the most. Uh, you can do it right by moving through the legal system or by voting in the right people, voting out the wrong people. Or seek some other peaceful way to do it. You, you can hope for change that way. And of course, we Christians, we can always and evermore pray. Or we can do it wrong. Riots. Involving yourself in property damage. Threats. Insurrection. Or other unlawful means to bring about change. That's not going to fly. God can't bless that. These, those kinds of tactics move you out of the bounds of God's will. It's not God's will to do that way. And it moves you into Satan's territory. Because listen, here's the deal. 
Satan is the author of lawlessness because he's the ultimate lawless one. Okay? The Bible is crystal clear about lawlessness. Um, and if you're going to break a law, be sure that the law you're breaking is a law that is forcing you to go against your Christian conscience. Then you practice civil disobedience. Say, I, I'm sorry, like Peter said to the Sanhedrin, the legal authorities of his day, he said, we must obey God rather than men. He said, if somebody walked in tonight, authority figures, police, for instance, Johnny wouldn't let it happen, but in case they did, uh, and said, you can't preach in Jesus' name <clears throat> anymore, I would have to say, sorry, I'm going to have to disobey. And hopefully, by God's grace, that's what I would say. And I would say, see you Sunday, I'll be preaching Jesus this Sunday. Okay? But here's the deal. That's civil disobedience. Because that's a law telling me to break God's law and God's command. I can't do that. But that's the only time that I should stand against a law and refuse to obey it. If I had a boss who was requiring me to do something illegal or immoral, I would have to say no. If I lose my job, I lose my job. But I cannot, I will not sacrifice my Christian conscience or my faith in God to obey you. Okay? Paul said, don't be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Lawlessness. Paul even calls the coming Antichrist the lawless one. He's the lawless one. Antichristos, the lawless one. Uh, so I hope that clears up a little bit because there's always a little bit more that might need to be explained when you're dealing with something like submission. But we're not done with submission yet. Hallelujah. Because Peter continues in chapter 3, right out of the chute, verse 1, submission at home. Verse 1, wives. Every wife in here say, amen. amen. And then say, here it comes. But like I said, hang on, because I'm getting to hubby right after you. All right. But what does it say? Likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. Now, I like to add right here, because husbands love that verse. Okay? But here's the deal. I like to add this. Paul also taught husbands to be submitted to wives. Submission is both ways. And if you've been married more than a week, you know that's right. Are you with me? All right. Um, now this passage runs completely entirely against the attitude of our generation and our culture, where feminism has ruined women's lives. The whole doctrine and teaching of feminism has destroyed women, dating, marriage, and men. Now, I'm not talking about getting equal pay for an equal job. That's not what I'm talking about. Stop and ask this question a minute. Is the, is the Bible the inspired word of God? Yes. Is it? Yes. So that every word in it, in the original manuscripts, was breathed out by God. So if it's God's word to mankind, 
God must know what is best for the wife and best for the husband. He's not out to ruin our party, ruin our fun, make life miserable. He only acts out of love. A God who is literally love cannot do anything but what it flows out of love. No way. So, the very first objection typically raised regarding submission is this one. But what if they're not worthy of my respect and submission? How can I submit to a man that hasn't earned it? Who may even be utterly unworthy of honor. Who doesn't even walk with or know God. Who leaves his dirty clothes everywhere. And, and junk in the sink. And who is not what I thought I was marrying. Hey, you never marry who you thought you were marrying. There's always surprises. But it can be done. He said, I want you wives to listen uh, to this. Be submissive to your own husbands. Now I'm going to give you the key to submission on anyone's part. A man's part, a woman's part, towards a boss, towards the law, towards anyone. Here it is. Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Where does our reward come from? The Lord. For you serve who, everybody? The Lord Christ. Now, we read that and we go, well, that's only talking about my personal relationship with Christ. And I serve him each and every day in my own heart and life. But, but Paul here in Colossians is breaking it down into also how we respond to authority. Okay, so we do it as unto the Lord and not unto men. As unto the Lord, not unto men. Could you submit to the Lord if he was there? If Jesus was right here, could you submit to Jesus? I, I could submit to Jesus. I'd love to see Jesus in person and bow down and submit to Jesus. Okay, but here's the deal. If you can... That's the first step in successful submission. Because when you understand authority, you understand that authority is delegated. Okay? An authority figure, a top authority figure, delegates to those under him slices and parts of his authority. Okay? So your boss, he's the boss of the organization or wherever you work. All right? And he will delegate that authority unless it's a little tiny operation. But if it's larger... He delegates his authority to others who act uh, on his behalf, who are representatives of him. And they go out and they bring his authority. When, when, when an officer, for instance, if he were to pull you over for whatever reason, he's not acting in his own authority. He doesn't have any authority in and of himself. He's acting on behalf of those who have delegated that to him. The city of Fort Worth the nation of America, and ultimately, listen, God gave him authority to restrain evil. I say, well, what about when they do wrong? Yes, they do wrong, but that doesn't take away what God did. Okay, so we respond to authority by recognizing delegated authority. See, what, what I marvel at by the day is how our nation has become totally blinded to this. We will scream and yell and threaten authority figures 
totally failing to see who they are as the representative of who they represent. We don't recognize their authority, their delegated authority. Peter's words here are about an attitude of trust in God while you practice submission. Um, Now, i got to add this as well. When I'm talking to a, a wife in a marriage, if the husband is abusive, I'm talking about you're in fear of your life. You're in danger. You've been physically abused. Do you know that Nicole Brown Simpson was counseled to go submit and stay in a situation where she was being abused? I would never tell a woman to go back into a situation where her life was in danger. No. Uh Uh-uh. And die for what? No. Again, I got a footnote, these talks about submission with things like that, because I've dealt with real life, pastoring as long as I have. I've sent women to shelters to save their life. And I'll, I'll do it till I go to heaven, because no way she's supposed to submit to that. Right? Can I have a better amen than that? I mean, we're not, we're Christian, but we're not stupid. Now, Peter is going to tell you how to reach your man when your man is not where he ought to be spiritually, okay? Um, He says that even if some do not obey the word, so who's he talking about? Lost husbands, backslidden husbands, disobedient, carnal husbands. That's what he's talking about. That even if some do not obey the word, they, notice this, without a word, Without a word, maybe one by the conduct, by the what? The conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, and that means respect. Now notice, Peter says, you're not preaching at him. He says, without a word. He says, I'm not telling you to go preach at him or nag or complain. You want to win him? Let him observe your chaste conduct because your conduct will point upward. Jesus said, let your good works so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So there's something about when a woman walks with God in front of a man who's not anywhere spiritually where he ought to be. This is what he's counseling. Peter says you can reach him without a word. The weapon that works is a double-edged sword of chaste conduct coupled with the fear of God. For the unsaved husband, the best advertisement for the truth and wonder of Christianity is a wife who daily models the Christ life. According to Peter, that's one way to get a new husband. Now, 
Again, I got to talk real because I've been around too long. I know that sometimes when you act like Christ, you go to church and you put on Jesus, that man can persecute you, needle you for it, make fun of you for it, and make life difficult for you. I'm not living in a bubble here. I just got to teach what Scripture is saying, that your first default uh, uh, method of reaching him is this one. And just see how it goes. See what God does. For the unsaved husband, there's something about a godly wife that begins to talk to him, especially if she's not preaching, nagging, or complaining. Now, I'm just reading the word here. Don't get mad at me. I'm just reading the word. Now, Peter's not done with the women, but I'm going to get to the men, so hang on. But next he's going to deal with how she dresses. Now, hang on. I am not like you might be thinking I am. Because look what he says. Don't let your adornment be merely outward. Arranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel, shopping at needless markup, I mean Neiman Marcus. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty. Notice how he describes a woman of God. The incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Now, these passages have been taken way out of context, way out of context, where poor women in certain denominations are told, you can't wear pants, you can't wear makeup, you shouldn't have jewelry on. I remember one time I was at a conference. I'm going to be real honest with you tonight. I was at a conference, and I got seated at this long table And right across from me was a row of these women who were in this kind of church. They had on no makeup, dresses, hair in in a bun. I'm not saying nothing wrong with the hair in a bun, but they all had their hair in a bun. And they looked so miserable. And they're staring at me. They're in dresses. So no jewelry, no makeup, hair in a bun. They have been told, they have had this verse twisted to them, where if you're godly, this is the way you will look. And you won't wear that jewelry or or those pants or any of that other stuff. But they were looking at me like I was... I don't know what I did or didn't do, but they didn't like, I don't know that they liked any men. But they're looking at me this way, and I thought one thing to myself, I'll bet they're fun at home too. Because they weren't allowed to be feminine. I, I don't know about you. Guys, I love being a man. Come on, men. I love, hoo, 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 I love it. I love being a man. I, I totally embrace my gender. Amen. And women, how many of you can say, I love being a woman? Come on. Then you ought to be willing and able to be feminine. That, that's not what he's teaching at all. The word merely changes all that. He said, not merely with jewelry and fancy clothes. Not merely. Not ever, but not merely. Not only. 
Don't let your adornment be merely outward, not just your appearance, but who you are on the inside. Because there's, there's women with a million-dollar smile but a 50-cent character. And so with the men. They, they can charm you and wow you, but a million-dollar smile, but there's 50 cents worth of character. Peter is saying God puts the premium on character. Godly character. Gentle and quiet spirit is from the Greek words meaning divinely inspired inner calmness. Amen. Divinely inspired inner calmness. This woman has peace with God. Her worries and cares have been cast upon the Lord. She's at peace. She brings tranquility into the room. She has a gentle and a quiet spirit. Peter is saying clothes and jewelry can be bought, but divinely inspired inner calmness and tranquility are priceless. Now, Peter says, let me point to some of the holy women of old. In this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed her husband, Abraham. She respected him. Uh, Now, some of you men, you love the King James Version. It says she called him Lord. (laughs) But I hate to pop your bubble. What that really means is uh, she respected him as the head of the house. Okay, so you guys don't ask your wife to call you Lord. Even if I heard that, I would pull you aside and have a talk with you, right? Some of you men, you're not coming back. I'm, I'm blowing your cover tonight, but that's the deal. She respected him as the head of the house. And you are her children, ladies, if you do what is right and you don't walk around in fear. In other words, you're not afraid to submit because you know that as you submit and respect him as the head of the house and and leave the leadership to him, not that you don't agree about certain things, you do. But he still got that position as head of the house. Now, if you respect that and submit to that without being afraid, then you're a daughter of Sarah. Amen, Pastor Jeff. Glory to God. In verse 5, he speaks generally without naming anyone, but he names Sarah in verse 6. Peter says that Christian women have a spiritual inheritance in Sarah. You hear that, Christian ladies? You have a spiritual inheritance in Sarah. Okay? He was the father of our faith. She's the mother. Wasn't always easy. She followed him to Egypt, and when he lied, she just kept her mouth shut. He lied about who she was. He said, look, I'm going to tell him, you're a very pretty woman. I'm not going to get beat up and maybe killed because they want you. So you tell them that you're my half-sister. Not that you're my wife. And when they came to get her, she didn't say one word. She trusted God. She was carried into a wicked king's household. And God plagued that household with sickness and death and trouble. And God spoke to that king and said, you better get rid of this woman. She is the wife of a prophet. And he took one look at her, told them to get her, and took her right back to Abraham and said, why'd you lie to me? 
Now there sits Sarah. She never had to say one word. She's got the grin of a Cheshire cat because he's busted now. But, but it all happened as she stayed trusting in God in the place of submission. <laughs> oh, I'll bet she had a great big I told you so. Now, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid. Sarah had no fear in her submission. She trusted God. Now, Peter turns to the men. Now, all the women say amen. amen. Now, husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Ooh, now he's messing with me because my prayers being answered are hinging upon how I treat my wife. Now, the word vessel, when it says the weaker vessel, points to her body. Peter is simply stating the husband is to be gentle, kind, and considerate of her weaker frame. He doesn't have political correctness or wokeness. See, he's not saying women are right there. That's why this thing, this thing of women competing, men competing in women's sports, this is insane. This is denying biology. Because right here, Peter is saying men, by and large, as a rule, are stronger. And so, and yet, today we're so confused, so messed up, so crazy, so twisted in the way we think that we allow men to compete in women's sports and steal all of the awards. I'd pull my daughter out of that so quick and get her into a school where it was sane. I would never let my daughter go up against that. That's insane. The feminists can go on all day about women being equal to men. Physically, that's just not true. On the whole, men are stronger by nature, and they're exhorted not to lord that over the women. When the three angels visited his tent, Abraham told Sarah, quickly, get ready three measures of fine meal, knead it and make cakes. Uh, But then look at what Abraham did in cooperation. Abraham didn't say to Sarah, woman, Run to the herd and get get the cow. No, it says, Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and hastened to prepare it. He did the heavy lifting. Okay? Got the calf, prepared the calf, set the table. To top it off, his name for Sarah was Princess. That's what her name means. Princess, I'm going to go get the calf. I'm going to do the heavy lifting. All you got to do is prepare it. Now, what he's noticing is he's recognizing she's not as strong. There's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't mean she's less intelligent, less gifted, less capable, less talented. None of that. He's not saying any of that. He's just saying she's not as strong. So in picking things up around the house, Doing difficult manual labor, uh, the man should be considerate of her limitations. 
step up to help because Peter says you are heirs together of the grace of life. Here's the incentive. If you need to know that if you don't do that, you can risk your prayers being answered. Hindered. That's an interesting word. Hindered is from a Greek word used to describe hindering someone by breaking up the road they're traveling on. Okay? It's used to describe somebody who's detained unnecessarily. I don't want to be detained in my prayers. Are you with me, everybody? I don't want to be detained. Okay? Um, Paul uses this word to explain to the Romans why he had not yet visited them. He said, Satan has hindered me. Same Greek word. I've been hindered. There's, there's junk in the road. I can't get around it or through it. And that's the way your prayers are when it's not right at home. Men. Now next, Peter turns from marital relations to church relations. We're coming to the close. Everybody say amen. amen. We're doing great on time too. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. He's talking about church life now. In the church house, I want you to love as brothers. I want you to be tenderhearted. I want you to be courteous. I want you to be forgiving. I don't want you to hold grudges. I don't want you to uh, cart offenses around and and hang on to offenses. I want you to to be Christ-like in the house of God. One mind, compassionate. These are relational words. Loving, tenderhearted, courteous. These are the glue that keeps a fellowship together. We don't divide over the color of the carpet. We don't divide over the new chairs, whether you like them or not. You you don't let the devil split you apart as a church house, a church body, over stupid trivialities. He, He deals with offenses. He said, listen, don't return evil for evil. Reviling for reviling. On the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Now, please catch that, everybody. I've read this over and over again through the years, not returning evil for evil, not an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in the house of God. He said, or reviling. That, that means they, somebody criticizes you really harshly. You don't do it in return. But instead, you bless. Isn't that, this not what Jesus said? Bless those that curse you. Do good to those that hate you. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Because if you love only those who love you, what have you done that the world doesn't do? So he says, first, the law of retaliation. Don't do it. Don't take vengeance. Paul said in Romans, don't avenge yourselves. Give place to wrath, for it is written. Please catch this. This is so powerful. Let me just quickly draw a little picture. Give place to wrath. Place there is topos. It's the Greek word topos. Topography, land. What God is saying here is when somebody wrongs you, don't retaliate in kind. I want you to say something with me. I don't have to respond in kind. 
Because as soon as you respond in kind, you're just like them. So don't respond in kind. Okay? So if somebody treats you bad, you don't have to respond in, in bad treating them back. Don't respond in kind. You don't have to. That's a liberating thought. I don't have to. If you're being a jerk, I don't have to be a jerk back. If you're being critical, I don't have to be critical back. If you're being mean, I don't have to be mean back. No. Nobody can make me be anything I don't let myself be. So what Paul is saying is, instead of responding in kind, don't give or, or give place to wrath. Get out of the way and let God deal with it. Get out of the way. Give place. Give land. Give opportunity. Give place to God to deal with it and deal with them. You say, well, I gave him two days and not one thing happened. So I took it into my own hands. Sometimes you may wait years. The thing is, you got to forgive and move on with life. But you don't have to respond in kind. You don't have to respond in kind. Get out of the way. God, but as long as you're standing there taking vengeance, God's hands are tied. Because you got to get out of the way. So how do you get out of the way? Lord, I just give to you what they just did. I give to you what they did. What they said. You saw it. You heard it. You know it. So I forgive and I'm moving on with life. I've seen God deal with people that I really felt wronged me um, quickly. And I've seen it take years. But sooner or later, the chicken comes home to roost. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, it's not saying you shouldn't respond to a terrible accusation. If somebody accuses you of something really terrible and it's completely false, Matthew 18, 15, go to him. If your brother offends you, go to him. Between you and him alone. And tell him his fault. If he hears you, you gained your brother. He's not telling you to just sit there and take abuse all day long if, it, if it's something that you really do need to clarify or clear up because people are starting to believe something utterly false. Amen. It's saying don't be vindictive, don't be vengeful, spiteful, living by the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth and all of that. Then the principle of realization, knowing that you were called to this, knowing you were called to this, to not respond in kind. You were called to this. Called to what? Called to bless those that curse you. Called to live like Jesus did. There was a group of people a long, long time ago, really, really um, sought to destroy me. And um, said scurrilous things, and it, it was just awful. Uh, it, it just buried me for a while. And yet, I knew the call of God was on my life. And I knew that if I didn't forgive them, I could not move on. Because I wanted to pray an imprecatory prayer. You know what that is? 
Lord, break their teeth out. I read that today. David prayed that. Let their teeth be broken out. David prayed that. Okay? That's an imprecatory prayer. Guess what? Praying that kind of prayer went away with the advent of the new covenant. But here's the deal. I had to forgive. And I had to do it repeatedly. And the only way I got out of it was this. Lord, they wronged me. They intended evil against me. They want to take me out. But here's the deal. I said, but what they did to me cannot even begin to compare what my sin has done to you. My sin to you is a trillion dollar debt. What they did to me is million, hundred thousand, somewhere in there. But comparatively, no. So what they did, what they did to me, I said, Lord, I can forgive them because you forgave me far worse. Right? And so, and to this day, I pray through the Lord's prayer just about every day. And when it comes to the part of uh, forgiving my sins as I forgive those that have sinned against me, I forgive them again. Because I don't want to let one scintilla of that bitterness gut rot get into my spirit. So you got the law of retaliation, don't retaliate. Realization, you got to remember what God's called you to. And last, the law of remuneration, that you may inherit a blessing. You want to inherit a blessing? Don't respond in kind. Pray for them, all right? If you want to inherit a blessing. So let's read together the last three verses, 10 through 12. We'll put them right up there. Let's read it together. For he who would love life, is that you? And see good days, is that what you want? Come on, everybody. Then, Then what do you do? Let him, read it with me, refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And that's it. Wasn't that good stuff tonight? All right. I want to take a couple of questions. Anybody have a question? Okay, I got one here. And one over here, and okay, there's a couple. Go ahead. Hey, Pastor. Hey, so tonight's uh, passage that we went over reminded me of First um, Timothy chapter two, verse nine. Uh, Paul kind of gives this same instructions for apparel. Anyways, <clears throat> later on in verse fifteen, this verse always uh, kind of stuck out to me, and I could never really understand it. It says, uh, "But w- women will be preserved through the child or through the bearing of children." if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Another uh, translation we'll use, but the women will be saved through, through the bearing of children. Um, what does that passage mean? He doesn't mean sozo right. saved. He Salvation. doesn't mean saved for heaven. Mm-hmm. Uh, what he's doing there, and again, this goes so against the feminism of our day, but he's, he's magnifying uh, the power of a home life uh, and the woman's place in the home, and how that has a way of protecting her from temptations and other things. That Because you'll note in another place, he talks about the young widows 
falling into temptation because they're not ready to be single the rest of their life because they're young widows. So they're now, because they're a widow, they're now out of the home, the home life that he's talking about there because the husband's gone. And what does it say? They're open to temptations. And so there he's talking about how a woman who builds a home, because that's what a woman does. She's the builder of the home. Okay? She's the builder of the home. And when she submits to and, and just fits into that calling and that place that God has given her to build a wonderful home for the children, for the husband, for the family, then it, is, it preserves her, it protects her from forces that would come against her if she were not in that position. So in another place in the word, it says um, that a woman is to be the keeper of the home. Yeah. So how would you say in today's culture where, you know, women work as well as men to provide financially for the home? Would you say that biblically it's not supposed to be that way? Um, Well, I want to be careful there. Um, I will say I do believe when a woman is working the 40, 50 hour a week, it's harder for her to be a keeper at home uh, because it takes her out of it. And um, I don't think she's sinning working. I'm not going to go there. I don't believe that. I've heard that taught, and I don't believe that. Uh, However, um, what we're seeing now with women all over America who bought into the feminist message, the only thing that matters to a woman is having a career. Career is above family, marriage, children, anything. You go, girl, you get that career. And a lot of women totally bought into that. That wasn't a biblical message to women. They bought into it, they got a career, and became very successful in a career, made a lot of money sometimes, yet they wind up empty, alone, childless. And they start going, you know, it's like going for that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. You get at the end of the rainbow, there's no pot of gold. What they were promised, this fulfillment as women, it did not bring them the fulfillment. Because a woman, I'll probably get in trouble here, but a woman, when she has built a home and has children and is surrounded with children and has built a family, that is where they're happy. And I know I'm not a woman, but I've been around a while. I've known some women. And um, so I, I believe that the whole career message of feminism, you know, you're right there with a the man. You need to make what the man makes. You need to get out there. And it, it, it doesn't need to be a man's world anymore. And she got out and did it. And I believe that message cheated millions of women. Okay. All right. Hey. Hey. Um, <laughs> Pastor Jeff, okay, I have a comment, and then I, 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 I want you to see my side of this scripture. Um, oh, that sounds like a woman talking already. <laughs> I want you to see my side. No, okay, well, okay, right, how I perceive it. Okay, John chapter 11, when Lazarus died, Yes. you know, and uh, I know I've heard you and a, a few more uh, ministers uh, teach that uh, when the Jews were weeping behind Lazarus, 
mm-hmm. and Jesus, you know, came up on them and they, and because of his human side, you know, he was, he wept because they were weeping, right? Okay, I don't see it that way. I see it as, just hear me out, mm-hmm. that the... <laughs> I submit. <laughs> no. That it was because of their unbelief. That is right. No, you're right. I've never taught the other. It yeah. is their unbelief. Yeah, because it, his spirit groaned when he came upon them, yes. you know, and then it groaned again as he yes. walked, you know. That's exactly why he wept, because of the, the, the unbelief. Yeah. Because the two sisters, you'll note, one of them said, if you had been here. The other one said, oh, I know he'll rise on the resurrection day. So notice what their faith was. One of them had a yesterday faith. One of them had a tomorrow faith. If you had been here, then everything would be cool. But you're late. You ever feel like God was late? Yeah. But you're late. Now he's dead. You could, you could have done something when he was just sick, but now he's dead. So, so if you had been here, oh, yeah, my faith is that you could have healed him. Message being not now, though. And the one that said, oh, yeah, the resurrection day, someday. So yesterday faith, someday faith. But Jesus said, no, 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 you don't get it. I am the resurrection. I am. So, yeah, it's a real interesting little word play there. But you're right. It's because of their unbelief. All right, sir. Oh, yes. Uh, the question was, uh, it's in the story of Saul when he meets, uh, Saul when he meets the medium. When he's having a conversation in Samuel. Solomon? Solomon, yeah. With, with the medium. Get, it, get he, it a little bit closer. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, you mean Saul. Saul. Saul with the medium. Uh, okay. When they're having a conversation. With the medium. Right, okay. I'm sorry, my bad. Yeah. Uh, he, she says she, he came back from the dead. Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I had a conversation in my Bible study we do, and, and some of them say, well, it was demonic. And some said, no, it was the spirit of actual spirit of Samuel that came back. It's, it's two questions here, that one. And then, and then later on, uh, Samuel actually tells Saul that I'll, you, you and your sons will be with me. Yeah. Okay, is he saying like in the grave or in Abraham's bosom? No, in the afterlife. Okay. In the afterlife. You, you know, Hades at that time. And um, the whole, there's a big question of can you communicate with the dead? And we, I think we dealt with this last time, or at least recently. Can you communicate to the dead? Uh, no. Um, then why did, why did Samuel come back when Saul was, it was the day before his death, and God has quit talking to him, so he's going to this witch at Endor, who he had excommunicated from the kingdom, and so he shows up to get her to contact Samuel. And so he's really in the dumps now. And so... She says, are you sure you're, I'm not going to get in trouble if I do this? Yeah, yeah, I promise. I won't do a thing to you. Well, suddenly Samuel appears and predicts to Saul his death the next day as well as that of his sons. Now, people go, well, she brought back the dead. So does that mean that mediums can do that? And since uh, uh, that happened on Saul's behalf, why can't I go contact through a medium somebody who like my, ex, my, my late wife, my late husband, my late children, whatever. What's wrong with it? Okay, this is one of those times in the Bible where 
God did something that was the total exception to the rule. Now let's remember, like the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is there, his, his garments start glowing white as snow, suddenly here's Moses and here's Elijah. Well, God allowed them to come back to earth. We have to assume out of Hades, which is where you go, in Old Testament times, if you were righteous, you went to the good part of Hades, Abraham's bosom. If you were not righteous, you went to the bad part where you were tormented. And Hades is a waiting room, waiting for the great white throne judgment in Revelations 20. So in those days, Samuel came from there. So did Moses and Elijah. So why did God allow it? Don't know. He just did. Was he putting his seal of approval on witchcraft or sorcery or necromancy? No. Because he forbids it clearly in Scripture. It could be that he just wanted Saul to be told by Samuel, you're doomed. Tomorrow's it. Maybe it gave him one day to repent. Who knows? I don't know. But I do know it does not in any way validate sorcery or witchcraft or any of that. Because quickest way, I read this week of a story of 28 girls. I think it was 28. We're playing with a Ouija board. And all of a sudden, all of them like collapsed or got sick or something and had to be taken to the hospital because the thing had started moving. And they opened themselves up to true evil. So you don't mess with it. No, no. There's no ghosts. There's no departed spirits of your lost loved one walking around with unfinished business. And when an unfinished business gets taken care of, then they can go on to their rest. That's Hollywood. Okay? All right, one more. Charles. Yes, this is a twofold question. We got Easter coming up. And yeah. so this has to do with women and Easter. And I was. Women and Easter. Women okay. and Easter? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, boy. Okay. It's not that bad. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we know uh, I was actually weeping some yesterday. I love the book of John, and I love John 20, yeah. where uh, Mary Magdalene runs for Peter yeah. and John, we, you know, the other disciple. We, we know it was John. And so she calls them to come to the tomb. And yeah. so they come to the tomb, and they look in the tomb, and they see the stripes of, you know, linen and all that that are there. Yeah. And then, you know, they go home, okay? And Mary is outside weeping. And she's, you know, that, that she's in deep sorrow. Mm-hmm. Where have they taken my Lord, you know? Yeah. And so she comes inside the tomb. I think this was very shortly after that. I, you know, because later that evening, it was the same day too when they went to the, mm-hmm. you know, uh, he showed himself to the disciples. Yeah. And so here, she sees two angels. So I said to Sandy, I said, this is a Pastor Jeff question. And I said this yesterday because this is, I was reading this yesterday. And uh, I think the men didn't have the spiritual eyes to see the angels. I don't think they disappeared and reappeared for Mary Magdalene. I don't know. What is your thought? Because I think it happened simultaneously that this happened in rapidity. And so, 
here, when Mary comes in and goes inside the tomb, she sees two angels. The guys didn't see it. I think there are some instances where women, and, and Sandy agreed with me readily, have more <laughs> spiritual uh, perception you know, than men do sometimes. What do you think? Yeah. What are your thoughts on I, that? I don't know. Um, it's interesting. Mary Magdalene became the first New Testament evangelist. Yes. Pretty much. Um, and I don't know why the women, there were three women that went the first time to the, the tomb and right. saw the stone rolled away. Two Marys and uh, I forget the third name. And uh, wow, the stone was rolled away. We don't have to see to it that it's rolled away. Uh, Mary Magdalene saw the angels and she also saw the Lord and thought he was the gardener. Right. So she saw two, two angels and she the Lord Jesus. First one to see Jesus, yes. I don't know why he showed her. Now, we're told seven demons have been cast out of her. Mm-hmm. So she had been a tormented, really tormented woman. And Jesus set her free. So maybe it's because it's so signified and illustrated the mercy of God for those of us that have been so bound. The Bible says, he who is forgiven much, loves much. Yes, yes, yes. And I agree with that. So it could be for that reason that God just, uh, you know, let her see that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but it was according to his choosing. Yes. And um, The guys didn't see it, but Mary did. Yeah. So but ladies. The, but the second part is, yeah. second part is, uh, we, we know about the Great Commission in Matthew, and that's mainly what you hear about. But I think in John 20, there's another Great Commission, okay? And we don't get it, we don't hear about it that much, okay? And it's in verse 23 where, I've got two versions here, and I think I'd prefer this one. If you forgive anyone's sins, well, with that he breathed on them, and he, this is when he's with the disciples. Mm-hmm. Uh, he appeared to them behind the locked doors, okay? Mm-hmm. And uh, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. In other words, to me, that's great commission too, you know? And, and you know, we, if we don't share the gospel yeah. and we have the opportunity, we're not unloosing the chains that yeah. people are bound in. Yeah, that's right. And, in other words, we have the power through sharing the gospel, to forgive people their sins. Well, and, they and would to, experience their sins being forgiven. The, yes. The sharing of the gospel. Yes. yes. No, we, we can restrain sharing the gospel, which causes them to have their sins forgiven. Yeah, and that's, that's right. what, you know, that's, that's what I'm talking about. And, and, and here, you don't hear that much. You know, no. you hear the Great Commission, but that's a, a great power we have, you know, to set people free. That's exactly right. Loose people from their chains, you know. Right. Let's stand, everybody. That's right. I believe that's right. And, um, well, God is good. Let me just pray for you. And this Sunday, don't forget, we're going to be talking about the temptations of Jesus. Bring somebody that needs the Lord. Bring somebody that needs Jesus. And uh, we will see you Sunday. Lord, thank you for your blessing on the people of God. I pray, Lord, as we go, thank you, Lord Jesus, for teaching us wisdom that we do not fall prey to the lies and deceptions of this current culture we walk in your light in Jesus name. Amen. God bless all of you.